Hey, welcome to part five of this series, Skeptics Welcome. If you have been with us the last uh, five weeks of this series, I hope that it's been insightful, hope that it's been challenging, I hope that it's uh, maybe provided you some insight into some very, very challenging questions that you may have had. And so before we actually get into today's topic on the problem of ignorance, I want to recap where we've been the last five weeks because it is going to actually serve us quite well, I think, as we discuss today's topics. So if you were with us as we began this series on Easter morning, we discussed the problem of the resurrection. And what we concluded on that Sunday was that we believe in the resurrection because the people who experienced it were changed so dramatically by it. There were these disciples who had followed Jesus, you know, for three years, and then on a Friday night, they saw their, their leader die. And messiahs don't die, right? A dead messiah is no messiah at all. And so they gave up believing in Jesus on Friday night, and they ran in fear for their lives come Saturday. They believed that they too were next, that their heads were going to be on the chopping block, and so they stopped believing in Jesus. But then something happened Sunday morning that convinced them to recommit their faith into Jesus, and not only that, but to die horrible, horrible deaths. And we believe that thing was the resurrection, the true resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this resurrection only wasn't a historical thing. It actually does incredible things for individual lives and for the whole world. In fact, the resurrection was God's defeat of death and everything that is associated with it. So the natural question was, if God cared so much for humanity that he was willing to send his son to die such a horrible death, to rise from the grave, then why are we still experiencing such evil and suffering and pain in our world today? And the answer is because he desired an actual and genuine love relationship with humanity. And that actual and genuine love relationship required a choice. It required that it be freely chosen, which means that it can also be rejected. And so every time that love relationship is rejected for God, it is rejected for self-preference. It is rejected for self-love. We reject loving God so that we can love ourselves. I reject loving God because I would rather be the center of my life, and I would rather promote myself and love myself. And so evil and suffering come from the paradox free will creates. And God's solution to it was to embrace suffering and in its place offer us life. Well, fine, some might say, but this doesn't justify why God would consign anybody to the horrible cruelties of hell. I mean, come on, we live for 70 years upon this planet and we commit a lot of wrongs and a lot of evil, sure, but that does not uh, justify, you know, an eternity in hell, some might say. That choice to reject God, however, we need to understand is not just a temporal issue. In fact, every choice we make against love for God is conditioning ourselves to say in the end, God, all I have really ever loved is myself. And into eternity, we will continue to only ever love ourselves. You see, hell is the self-made kingdom where God leaves you alone to let you be king in the isolation your selfishness has always secretly wanted. But we talked about how Jesus is, of course, the only escape to this hell, that he is the only solution, that he is the only salvation. Well, some people might say, then doesn't that imply that every person who doesn't follow Jesus will then be in hell? I mean, what about all those other world religions? What about all the other salvations that all the other religions offer? Aren't any of them valid? I was uh, pulling up, uh, dropping my kids off at school this past week, and the car in front of me had a bumper sticker that said, God is too big to fit any, into any one religion. God is too big to fit into any one religion. So the implication, of course, is that there's truth, there's God in every religion. That every religion is just a different pathway up the same mountain, and in the end, everyone is going to be saved because God cannot be confined into one religion. I mean, can that be true? And if you were with us last week as we discussed this, I would suggest, no, simply put, that cannot be true. 
Because every religion makes truth claims. And so if one religion claims one thing is true, then its opposite, which another religion might claim is true, cannot at the same time be true. It has to then be false. It's illogical then to think that every religion can be true. But fundamentally, every religion is the same. They are just different approaches at appeasing the inner guilt and shame that comes with the human condition. That is essentially what religion is. It's trying to fix an inner problem that we all know we have. It's a self-made attempt to fix ourselves. And so notice then how religion is actually very self-promoting. If religion is all about me and what I do, then at the end of the day, I should be rewarded for what I do. It's not about what God has done for me. It's about what I have done. So in the end, doesn't God owe me something? I've met all the requirements, God. Where's my reward? I've done everything you've asked, God. Where is my reward? Religion is in and of itself very self-promoting. We've accomplished the task. We've worked hard. So where's my reward? But what Jesus offers is so unique, and it is so beautiful, and it's so otherworldly. Jesus simply offers us forgiveness. He doesn't say, here's X, Y, and Z that you must do. Here's the list of all the boxes that you need to do. Jesus, and Jesus alone, out of all the religions of the world, offers us forgiveness. He does not say, strive harder or do more work. He doesn't say, here's some good advice. Yes, Christianity offers us a lot of good advice, but what Christianity primarily offers us is good news, something that has been done for us, not something that we need to do. Christianity is not about us. In other words, Christianity is all about Jesus. And so I want you to notice the narrative so far, how how the story has progressed from the resurrection to today. See, God desperately desires a love relationship with all of humanity, but we rejected it. We rejected it for self-love, for self-promotion, for me, 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 for selfishness. And each time we freely choose that self-love through selfish actions and choices, we are conditioning ourselves to say in the end, God, I am the only one I've ever truly loved. And when that is true of us, God grants us what we've always desired, which is isolation from others, and most importantly, isolation from himself. And so I want you to keep this narrative in mind this morning, as it's going to become an important narrative as we continue our discussion. And so the question of ignorance is this. What happens to those people who have never heard the name of Jesus? You guys ever thought about that before? Has that question ever, ever crossed your mind before? What happens to all of those people who have never heard of Jesus, that are ignorant of Jesus. I mean, the universal human condition is self-promoting, and without Jesus, there is no solution, right? Jesus is the only way to the Father. He is the only one uh, that provides us a means to be reconnected with the Father. So what happens to all those people who are ignorant of him, who do not have explicit knowledge of Jesus? I mean, there are 800 million people who are walking the face of the planet today who have never heard the name of Jesus. And there are innumerable people throughout history who have never heard the name of Jesus. Are they just doomed to die in hell? To suffer eternally? The torments of hell? And you need to know that of all the topics that we've discussed so far and all the topics that we are going to discuss in the series, this is the one that I have wrestled with the most. This is the one that I have labored over the most. This is the one that has received the most prayer. This is the one that I stay awake at night and I write myself like super lengthy emails at three in the morning because I just need to dump my brain from all the thoughts that I have regarding this. This is the one that has challenged me the most. Because here's the problem. The problem of ignorance is what happens to those who are completely aware of Jesus. So what happens to those who have lived upon this earth but have never had a Christian missionary visit their village? 
You know, what happens to those people who have never had a missionary cross the seas and climb the mountains and transcend down, uh, ascend down into their village and tell them about the great love of God in the name of Jesus? What happens to those people? Because if explicit faith in Jesus is the only means of salvation, then, guys, aren't we so privileged to have been born in the family we have been born in, in America, in this time of history where Jesus is, is in abundance? You guys are so dang lucky to be born into a place that has Jesus offered you, where explicit knowledge of Jesus is in abundance and is so prevalent. I mean, how many churches are on Leviton Parkway alone? I mean, we could just stop in any of them. We live in a Christian nation, but sucks to be all those people, those 800 million people who never hear Jesus. They have to burn eternally in hell. They're just born into the wrong family. They're just born into the wrong culture. Sucks to be them. Man, we are so privileged. We are so lucky. And what happens to the infants? What happens to the infants who die before they have any knowledge of Jesus Christ? What happens to those who are mentally incapable of understanding who Jesus is? This is a really hard question. Really, really hard questions. So imagine you're a 12-year-old boy in a rural Yemen. You grew up as a shepherd because it's the family business that has been passed down from generation to generation. For hundreds of years, it's been the family business. Your family is largely uneducated. You live a very simple life. You're vaguely aware of Allah because, you know, Islamic militants have come into your town from time to time, but they've always only ever frightened you, and so Allah has only ever frightened you. You've had so very little interaction with the Quran that because you were uneducated, it meant very little to you, and so you don't even know that Jesus was a prophet, let alone attached to some, you know, religion or a salvific principle somewhere. You give thanks to the earth for its provisions as your ancestors have done for generation to generation. And so that is what you do and that is what they have taught you. And so one day as you're grazing your sheep, a bear attacks. And in defense of your sheep, the bear mauls you to death and you die. What happens? What happens to you? You've never heard the name of Jesus. What happens once you die? And there's another category that sours this pot a little bit. I will never forget the time when a young man came into my office when I was a pastor in Minnesota. I pastored at a university in Minnesota for six years, um, and I had incredible conversations with a lot of people, and one of them was this young man who came into my office. He came into my office holding a letter that his sister had written as she had committed suicide about a week earlier. And in this letter, she just spewed hatred towards Jesus, along with her father and along with the world and along with a number of other things. But Jesus was one of the most prominent things that she hated in her life. And the reason she hated Jesus so much is because every time uh, that she misbehaved, every time she, um, she did not do what her father asked of her, her father would take his belt off and he would whip her in the name of Jesus. And she had lashes across her chest and her arm and her face and her legs and her body was just covered in these bruises in the name of Jesus. Her father thought he was doing a service to her because he saw her, her rebellious state as you know, some demon possession, and so he thought he was casting out this rebellious child in the name of Jesus. And of course, she didn't see it that way. That's not how she understood it, but in the name of Jesus, she was beaten. She was abused. And so this young man came in asking if because she hated Jesus and she had committed suicide, would she be in heaven? The situation is not all that unlike the recent question a young boy asked the Pope. Maybe some of you have seen this video going around uh, social media. A young boy came to the Pope and he asked 
him if his father, who was a devout atheist, would be in heaven? And the response the Pope gave was, well, you need to understand, little boy, that God has a father's heart and that he will not abandon your father. And a lot of people chimed in on the comments and said, no, 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 the Pope is being heretical. Jesus and explicit knowledge of Jesus is the only way to the Father. The only way to reconnect and to have restoration with the Father is through Jesus. And so no, that, 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 that man who is a devout atheist will not be in heaven. But in light of the young man who came into my office after his sister who committed suicide, I think a very interesting question needs to be asked. What Jesus are we referring to? What Jesus must we believe in if we are to be saved? Now, that answer to that question might seem very obvious to us. I, I, I pray and I hope that, you know, we're, we're in our Bibles and we're reading and we're understanding and you come to church, you know, regularly and we're understanding who Jesus is. But not everyone has that benefit. There are girls who lock themselves away and commit suicide because the Jesus that they've been spoken over has been one of abuse and hatred and hurt. And so this issue of ignorance is not just a problem for an unhearing world, right? It's a problem for America. It's a problem for America who has a caricature of Jesus but doesn't know who the true biblical Jesus is. It's a problem for those who have a caricature of the Christian faith in their minds but is not grounded in a biblically informed Jesus. A new study was just released by the Barna Group that discovered that 83% of Americans claim themselves to be Christians. Doesn't that seem incredible? 83% of Americans? That's so many, right? That, that's, that's, that's so many. But 83% of Americans claim to be Christians, but only half of those 83% state that Jesus was God incarnate. That they have a, a version of Jesus in their minds. They claim themselves to be Christians, but they have a version of Jesus in their minds that is not God. Half of those people also said that they thought that Jesus lived a sinless life. And my friends, if Jesus didn't, didn't live a sinless life, then he could not atone for sin and we're still screwed. And so they have an idea of who Jesus is, but is not God. It is not a sinless Savior. Most people, according to the survey, just said that Jesus was a good teacher, a religious teacher, like so many of the other religious teachers who lived throughout history. He just offered us good advice on how to live one's best life, half of these people said. And so even though we live in a Jesus-centric culture, even though we live, uh, we, we, we attend a church on a street that has like how many other churches on that street, and we have Jesus as so accessible within our day, the vast majority of people are ignorant to who Jesus is and was, and what he did, and what he accomplished, and why any of it matters. The vast majority of people are ignorant to who Jesus is. And so the question is, if Jesus is the only way to the Father, if everybody outside of Jesus will perish, then what is the eternal destiny of those who have never heard of Jesus? What, are the, what is the eternal destiny of those who are ignorant of the Jesus who saves us? And before we drum up a theological answer that is void of heart and that is void of compassion, I want you to put yourself into a counseling situation for just a minute. Put yourself into my shoes. You're sitting down, and a child, a young man, comes into your office, and he says, my sister just committed suicide. And she hated Jesus because the only Jesus she ever knew was one of abuse and of hurt. So you're down in front of a mom who just lost her infant child. 
who is asking, what, what is happening to the eternal state of my infant? So you're down in front of a young boy who just lost his atheistic father. How do you respond to that? Sit yourself down in front of parents whose child is mentally incapable of communicating and understanding and have questions about what's going to happen to their child once he dies. How do you respond? It's not just a theological issue. It cannot just be a theological issue. It has got to be a personal, emotional heart issue. Because if we can believe that God is love, and God is gracious, and God is merciful, and God cares far more for any single human on this planet than any of us do, and my friends, that's absolutely true, then we need to let those categories inform our theology. We need to move to what is clear. God is just, God is lovable, God is caring, God is merciful and gracious. We need to move to what is clear, to what is unclear, what happens to those who have never heard of Jesus. Let's let what we know about God inform our theology. And so here's the thing. The Pope has received a ton of criticism for what he said to that little boy. A ton of criticism for what he said. People, conservative Christians, think that he's speaking heresy over this boy. He's trying to comfort this boy, but he's lying to this boy as he tries to comfort him. But my contention is that the Pope is being far too generic to receive such harsh criticism. We can all agree that, yes, God does in fact have a father's heart. And regarding that God will never abandon his, his father, I, I don't even know if that's true necessarily, but what we can be sure is that his father might, in the end, choose to abandon God. That his father might look up at God and say, I have only ever chosen to love myself, and therefore I don't want any part of your paradise. I'm going to go live in my own self-isolated kingdom. See, all the Pope is really trying to convey to this little boy who is grieving the loss of his dad is this fundamental truth that God is just. That's all the Pope was really trying to convey, is that God is just and God is love and God does not desire anyone to perish. And if God is just, then won't he do what is right? Won't God do what is right? See, the bottom line and the most fundamental truth that I hope that you can walk away with are these three words this morning. God is just. Whatever else is said this morning, whatever thoughts else you have this morning, this is what we need to rely on. God is just. If you forget everything else that is said, remember this this morning. God cares more about every individual than I do, than you do, and that God will do what is right in the end. See, Carl Bratton, a pastor and theologian, described the issue this way. He said, Scripture leaves no doubt that in the world to come, sin's punishment shall be real and searching. Yes, God is going to do away with all sin in the end. We know that it will entail banishment from him. Right? Hell is that self-isolated kingdom. And further, we know that infinite love and perfect justice shall measure the cup each must drink. That is God's justice that will judge humanity. But beyond this, we know absolutely nothing. And so at the end of the day, the only thing that we know for certain is that God is just, that God is love, and that God's infinite wisdom, he will do what is right. So please don't judge me for wrestling this issue to the ground this morning. You may not agree with the conclusion that I have come to regarding this, the conclusion I still wrestle with and labor over. But you know what I love about Christian Orthodoxy? You know what I love about Restoration Church? Is that you don't have to agree with everything I say, and we can still be friends. Can you still be my friend if you don't agree with everything I have to say this morning? 
You may have come to your own conclusions regarding this, and that is absolutely fine. Um, this is not one of those dogmatic issues that is going to you know, determine the, the essence of our Christian faith. So where I have landed may not be where you landed, but we can still be friends. And I love that about Restoration Church. I love that about true Orthodox Christianity. But to give you some fodder for discussion this morning, the spectrum of Christian thought on this issue runs from universalism on one end to restrictivism on the other. And nestled in between these two are what are called inclusivism and a post-mortem evangelization option. See, proponents of all four of these views, all four of them are going to say that they're, you know, when they look at passages like Ezekiel 18 and 2 Peter 3.9 and 1 Timothy 2.4, that God does not desire that anybody should perish. God wants all people to come to salvation and explicit knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ. He wants all people to be saved. He does not want anybody to perish. And so every child that is born in Yemen, all 800 million people who have never heard the name of Jesus, every infant born of this world who does not live past the point of understanding, every child that is incapable of understanding and communication, God desires every single person made in his image that has ever walked the face of this planet to find salvation. And some people will say, well, if that's true, then, and God is all-powerful and he can make that happen, then universalism, of course, God will just permit everybody into eternity, into his paradise. God will just permit everybody If he desires all people to be saved and he has the power to save all people, then everybody will be saved in the end. But we've already determined that God will not manipulate our will. If you've been with us throughout the series, God will not manipulate our will. He will not coerce us into doing something that we have absolutely no desire to do. So if we, at the the very heart of our heart, say that, God, I've only ever truly loved myself and all I've really, really wanted is myself and my own isolation and my own kingdom. If I wanted to be the king, it's all about me, me, me. If that's the true desire of our heart, then God will let you live that way. God will permit anybody who wants to enter into hell for eternity to enter into eternity. And so we're going to cross off universalism as an evangelical option this morning. On the other end is restrictivism. This is the most conservative and traditional way of thinking about this, though it's probably not the most popular within evangelical Christians today. Because the child in Yemen has never heard explicit knowledge of Jesus, they will die in their sin and they will be judged for what they did know. Oh, they'll be judged, I'm sorry, for what they did not know. You know, Paul said to the Romans, all are without excuse. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the punishment for sin is death. And so those who are sinners will die even though they had no idea of a cure named Jesus Christ. It's not the, the absence or the, the, um, it's not the inaccessibility to the cure that has killed people. It is the disease that has killed people. And so all those people, the 800 million people who, who die, they just didn't have access to the cure. But that is not what has killed them. It is the disease itself that has killed them. But understand something uh, about this, that the onus of responsibility in some ways for the salvation of the 800 million people, the salvation of your neighbor, the salvation of everybody who has an ignorant approach to Jesus, the onus of responsibility is in some ways us, the Christians, the ones who do know. Yes, of course, ultimately salvation is through Jesus Christ and knowledge of him, of course, but aren't we the ones who proclaim that knowledge? Aren't we the ones who have to climb the mountains and cross the seas and tell people about Jesus Christ in order for them to be saved? And so, man, 
the 800 million people who don't know Jesus and who are going to perish in hell, the responsibility of that in some ways falls to us. We better get our act together. That's a hard line to take, but in some ways it's true. In the middle, nestled between these two options, is inclusivism and post-mortem evangelization. Inclusivism would suggest that we must know Jesus in order to be saved, but that we must not know that we know him. I know that's super clear, and there's no confusion at all to what I just said regarding that. They would say that God applies to some the blood of a Savior that they, for whatever reason, was outside of their control, had access to knowing. They were unable to know who Jesus was, but God still applies the blood of a Savior to them, even though they did not, not know who Jesus was. And they will be judged on the knowledge they did have, this intrinsic knowledge that they did have. The way that they had conditioned their hearts through their choices will be how they will be judged in the end. A postmortem evangelization states that Jesus himself presents the gospel to everyone after they've died, but before the final judgment. Now, both of these views, you need to know, state that Jesus and Jesus alone is the only way to salvation, uh, to reconnect with the Father, that Jesus and Jesus alone is the only way that we can be compatible with God. They cannot do it on their own. There is no works-based salvation in any of these views. If someone is saved, then it is through Jesus Christ. And so what I've wrestled to the ground in regards to all these, through my study and my prayer and my laboring about all of these various issues, is that there is a most middle version nestled in between inclusivism and a post-mortem option. From the whole breadth of Scripture and theological inference, a post-mortem evangelization within an inclusivist framework is where I have essentially landed on this issue. Now, here's the thing. You don't have to agree with me, and that's totally cool. But I want to spend a minute, I want to spend a minute telling you why I've landed here. And then I want to ask you just a couple of questions as we conclude our service this morning. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6 says this. For those of you who have your scriptures with you this morning, you're welcome to turn there. Otherwise, the text will be on the screen. He begins by saying this. So then, since Christ offered, uh, I'm sorry, since, I, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. I mean, this is really only natural if you think about it, right? If the leader of of our faith, suffered such incredible persecution and suffered such incredible pain, then it's only natural that we who follow him would experience suffering as well. That we would experience persecution and pain as we continue to love and as we continue to forgive those who hate us just as Jesus did. It's only natural that Christianity cannot just be a comfortable religion. But we will have to be uncomfortable if we want to follow Jesus. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. See, if sin is all about self-protection, if sin is all about self-promotion, if it's all about me, 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 and making my life better, even at the sake of you, if it's all about myself in the end, then for those of us who are done with sin, if we're willing to suffer physically, right, if we're willing to embrace something that is not about me, that causes me pain, then it's proof, Peter would say, that you are done with sin, that you are no longer mastered by sin because you're willing to engage in something that is not comfortable for yourself. You're not going to go spending the rest of your life chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. See, when we recognize sin and self-promotion for what it is, it's the source of death. We set our pursuit aside, and instead we are eager to chase after the very source of life. When we set aside 
what we know to be death, what we know to be not good for us, we begin then to chase after life. True and genuine life found in God. So you have had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy. Their immorality and lust, their feastings and their drunkenness and their wild parties and their terrible worship of idols. So we've wasted so much of our life in pursuit of all of those things and now we've come to this conclusion that there is no life in those things. We've wasted so much of our life doing that. So why would we continue to do that when we know where genuine life lies, when we know where where genuine uh, humanity lies in the person of God and in Jesus Christ? We're going to pursue something new now. We're not going to chase after those things that are hollow and hopeless. Of course, Peter continues, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do, so they slander you. I mean, maybe for some of you guys have experienced this. You, you, you had a previous life that you were living, and then you met Jesus, and you began to pursue a new genuine life, a genuine humanity that was not attached to those raucous and riotous ways. And, and all of those friends from that previous life are like, hey, man, why'd you come and party with us? Why don't you come and do all those old things that you do? And you're like, I don't know. I just I don't find a lot of interest in them anymore. I'm pursuing something new. I'm pursuing something better. I'm pursuing, some, I'm pursuing something more genuine. But maybe you've experienced that slander, those things that people say against you. But remember that they will have to face God who stands ready to judge everybody both the living and the dead. You see, everybody will have to stand before God in the end. Everybody will have to stand before God and give account to how they live their life. Those who lived a raucous and riotous life and those who lived a quote-unquote holy life will all stand before God in the end. And then here's where this text gets really, really interesting. And that is why, because we will all be judged in the end, that is why the good news was preached to those who are dead. So although they were destined to die like all people, they now live forever with God in the Spirit. See, there is hope for everybody who has died. Even the raucous and the riotous, even those who lived against God's will while on earth, because the good news is preached to everybody, Peter says, so that even though they will suffer the judgment of the death of their body, perhaps through the good news that is offered through Jesus Christ, they will not have to suffer the judgment of the death of their spirit. You see, the, the, the primary reason that the post-mortem option is, is rejected uh, by people is because they think it's a second chance. They, they think that it doesn't matter how one behaves here on earth. They, they don't think that your, your, your choices matter while you live on this planet, right? People think that it doesn't matter how we live, and, and in the end, we're all going to hear the gospel, and we're all going to have an opportunity to accept Jesus. It doesn't matter how you behave, because that behavior is irrelevant if we can just choose Jesus in the end. Salvation is offered to everybody in the end. And the other reason that people reject it is because they think that it devalues the need for evangelism and devalues the need for missions. But if you paid attention during this series, if you've been with us the last five weeks, and the reason I recapped this series at the beginning was to help you understand a few, a few things regarding this, if you paid attention during the series, you hopefully recognize how fatal those assumptions are and how, how those assumptions don't actually make any sense because we are all conditioning ourselves to accept the gospel in the end. We're all conditioning ourselves to either say to God, I am who I have ever loved, or God, you are who I have ever truly loved. Every day we are doing that. We are all conditioning ourselves to even have the capacity to accept the gospel. So of course your choices matter here on earth. Of course how you live matters here on earth. And for all those people who do not even know that they are conditioning cells, we also need to remember that every single person who has ever walked the face of this planet is made in the image of God. 
To live and to love like God is actually hardwired into the very nature of what it means to be a human person. But sin has warped and has hijacked this. So as a gift to humanity, God placed enmity within the human person. Every single one of us has enmity. It's a deep-seated hatred for the fallen and the broken condition that we are all in. See, everybody knows they're not right. Everybody knows this because we all experience guilt and shame and the brokenness that comes with, with being human. We're ashamed of, of, our, of, our, of our behavior. We have a, a conscience that is heavy upon us, and every single person longs for a solution. And so what have we learned? Everybody has turned to religion in hopes to fix the problem. Everybody recognizes that they're not right, so everybody has turned to religion to fix the problem that we're all aware that we have. But religion has only exasperated the problem. Religion only makes things worse. Not only is religion a perpetual guilt machine, meaning that when you enter into religion, religion actually spirals you down further into guilt. It doesn't release you from your guilt and your shame. Religion only makes things worse. See, there's nothing within religion that can save us because religion only serves to foster the problem. And the reason this paradigm might be challenging to us, the reason that we we don't fully understand this paradigm is because so many of us have looked at a certain model that has been prevalent for the Christian faith for the last hundred years or so. And we've looked at this model and we've understand the nature of sin because of this model. We've understand the nature of, of man's responsibility in regards to this model. So with great intention in describing the gospel, someone somewhere along the way drew on some napkin somewhere a model. It was a model of a man who was standing on one cliff's edge and God was on the other cliff's edge and sin was separating us. How many of you guys have ever seen this model before? A lot of us, right? First time I ever saw this, I was working at a Mexican restaurant as a server and someone left this as a tip for me. Good times, right? I would have rather got the $5, but it's a prominent model. There's a lot of great things about this, about this model. There's a lot of good things that we can understand um, about this model, about our relationship to God and our relationship to sin. But one of the challenges about this is that it implies that sin is stagnant. It implies that, that sin doesn't grow within us, that sin doesn't harden us, that sin doesn't do anything to us because sin is external. And it's not within us, and it's not changing us, and it's not forming us. You see, we are sinful, and we are depraved, and we cannot cross the divide by our own efforts. And the reason this guy is running is because he is attempting to cross the divide by his own efforts. He is getting ready to run, and he's getting ready to jump in hopes to earn his way to God. But of course, it cannot be done. He's going to fall in the pit of sin, and the only way that we can be saved is through the cross, which eventually comes and bridges that gap. So there's a lot of good things about this model. But one thing that it fails to show is that we are being conditioned as people, that we are moving as people in our sin. Our sin nature grows within us. It gets worse. We get hardened. Our selfish actions and our thoughts and our words do in fact condition our hearts. And I think there's, a, there's another model. It's not necessarily better or worse, but there's another model, and in its simpler form, it looks like a compass. We've turned around, right? We've chased after something other than God, but like a compass, we were designed to face due north. When God created humanity, we were designed to chase and pursue God, but we have turned our back on God and we have chased something else. There should be some arrows, as in, there you go. So that's there's the, how we were designed, but we've simply turned our backs on God. We're now chasing after something else. We're moving in a new direction. We're moving away. This, too, is separation, and it's a separation in a different and even a greater kind, I think, because not only are 
We rejected God, but we were actually running away from God. We're chasing something else. We have, we have hardened. We are, we are growing in our sin. But this model also suggests that it can be repented of, that we can turn around. That with the, the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the power of God's Spirit, we can turn around. James said that one of the reasons we shouldn't cave into earthly desires and temptation is because it will lead to sin, which will grow into death. He said, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. We are being conditioned. We are being hardened. There's something taking place within us that is actually drawing us further away from God. We are conditioning our hearts to say in the end, God, I am who I have ever truly loved. And every selfish action, every selfish choice, and every selfish behavior is only conditioning my heart to say in the end, God, I am all that I have ever truly loved. And every loving action and every choice for the benefit of another person that will sacrifice something on my behalf is to say in the God, God, say in the end, God, you are who I have ever truly loved. And so let's put this all together. In Luke 12, Jesus pulls his disciples away from a very large crowd that had gathered. We read that there's like thousands of people that have gathered to, to listen to Jesus. And so Jesus pulls his disciples away. He wants to talk to them about the dangers of hypocrisy, about falling into the trap of the Pharisees, about living your life one way, but then, you know, thinking something different in the, in, in the end. And how hypocrisy can, can suck the life out of a person. And in this passage, it's a really fascinating passage because he jumps back and forth between, between earthly events and earthly experiences and eschatological events, things that are happening up in the heaven and things that are happening prior to judgment. And so he jumps back and forth. And the, and the reason that he does this is because he wants to create a parallel between what we do on earth and what is happening in the heavens. What we do on earth and what will happen prior to judgment. So there's this parallel, parallel that is taking place that Jesus is laying out. And here's what he says then. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. There is nothing that is hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. So here's how it all comes together in my own mind. We're going to stand before God. Every single one of us will stand before God in the end. Every single one of us will stand before God in judgment. And every single thought that we have ever thought And every single word that has ever come out of our mouths and every single action that we have ever done will be laid before God. Will be laid out on the table and exposed to God. And the one that has relied on religion their whole life to fix the problem of guilt and of shame, we're going to blame others and we'll justify it and we'll claim that it really wasn't as bad as it looks, God. God, if, if you were only there, like, you would understand why I said those things. If you were only there, God, you'd understand why I did that. If you were only there, God, you'd understand why I was thinking what I did about that person. I'm going to justify my behavior, God. It really wasn't that bad. It really wasn't my fault. It's really her fault. It was really his fault. We'll blame. We'll try to convince ourselves that we are not to blame. That it wasn't true of us. And in the end, God will say, you can keep walking away from me in pursuit of your love of yourself. But if we simply acknowledge our sin, when all that is you know, concealed is disclosed and hidden, made known before God, when everything that we've ever done, every word and thought and action we've ever done is laid before God, in the end we say, God, it is absolutely true of me. I said every single thing. It's all true. I did it all. Yeah, I did conceal that. I did try to cover it up. 
It's true, God, I'm not hiding anything. And you fall on the grace of God, and you fall on the mercy of God, and you fall on the shed blood of Jesus Christ to cover you. Then in the end, God will say, Jesus has covered your penalty. Enter into my paradise. You see, this is a post-mortem choice. Is this true of you? We can either reject it or we can embrace it. And we are conditioning ourselves on this side of eternity to make one choice over another. You see, not everybody is going to hear of Jesus before they die. There are 800 million people walking the face of the planet today who have never heard Jesus' name. There are innumerable people who have lived and died without hearing Jesus' name. Not everybody is going to hear of Jesus before they die. But once they meet their creator, perhaps they will be offered salvation. Some who have never heard of Jesus will gladly accept his gospel because in the end, they have conditioned their, heart, their hearts to say to God, you are who I have ever truly loved. You are what I was truly pursuing in this life. And there are a lot of people who say, God, I've only ever truly loved myself. And they will reject the gospel when it is offered them. I'm going to invite the band forward. and We're going to reflect on this as we sing one final song together. And so here's the question that I want to wrestle with this morning. You know, here's the thing I want to leave you with because let's set aside the 800 million people for just a second and ask ourselves a question. How are our hearts being conditioned? How is your heart being conditioned? Because the same question that is asked of the child in Yemen who has never heard of Jesus is also going to be asked of you when you stand before God in judgment. And your knowledge of Jesus, right, that the privilege that we have to have this understanding of Jesus, to have churches on every corner, the accessibility that we have with Jesus, that knowledge of Jesus requires greater actions of love on our part, does it not? Doesn't it require more of us? You see, the irony is that access to Jesus has made Jesus for too many to be taken for granted. Man, everybody's a Christian in the United States, 83%. But nobody knows who he is. We just all think we're going to be in heaven someday. We've taken Jesus for granted. We've taken his salvation for granted. And too many people will claim Jesus as their Savior, but they will choose to live whatever kind of life they want. And in the end, they are conditioning themselves, even though they know the name of Jesus, they're conditioning themselves to say in the end, God, I've only ever truly loved myself. And that's scary. Grace has become cheap. Salvation has become assumed. See, when all laid out, when all laid out... When all is laid out before God and every deed made known and every secret thought exposed, how are you going to respond to God? You know, will will your life of secret keeping and blame shifting and religion keeping convince you to point the finger somewhere else or, or try to convince God that it really wasn't as bad as he thinks it is and if he was there, then he would understand why you had to say those things and do those things? You point the finger at someone else and you blame someone else for what you did. Will you attempt to justify yourself? Will you attempt to conceal and cover up what you have done, and you, in the end, will only say, God, I've really ever only truly loved myself? Or will your life of constant reflection on the gospel, on the true Jesus whom you have the privilege of knowing, will your life, after everything you have done, right, and, and all the sin that you continue to commit, and the lies, and the things you look at, and the things you say, and the actions you do, and the words you think, you know, and the words that come out of your mouth and the things you think after all of that and the constant reflection of the gospel and the great love of God poured out for you and the grace that has embraced you even in the midst of that and you say, God, it's true. 
Yes, God, I can seal it, God. I am a mess inside, God. I'm a wreck inside. But your grace is sufficient to cover my weaknesses. Will your constant pursuit and the constant reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ allow you to say in the end, God, you are who I have ever only truly loved? Yes, it is true of me, God, and I fall on your mercy in the name of Jesus Christ to free me and to offer me paradise. So my friends, right now you have a choice to make. How are you going to live your life? How are you going to condition your heart? But beyond this, who can you go and tell about the great love of God in Jesus Christ? Because here's, here's the thing about all this. At the end of the day, right, God is just. That's really the only thing that we can be absolutely certain of, that God is love, that God is gracious, that God is merciful, that God is compassionate, that God cares for people far more than we do. That God is just in the end. That's the only thing that we can be certain of. And so, all those people who do not know Jesus are in danger. That's all we can be certain of is that God is just and that God will do what is right. But all those people who are apart from Jesus Christ in the end are in danger. There may be enough biblical evidence to suggest a degree of hope that they will embrace the gospel once they die. That might be true. But everything we are told impresses on us an urgency to convince the world of Jesus Christ. And so I can say with certainty that all without Christ are damned, but I can't say that all without explicit knowledge of Jesus on this side of eternity are damned. And so, my friends, if you're concerned about one of the 800 million people who are currently walking on the face of this planet who don't know Jesus, what do you need to do? Go tell them about Jesus. If you're concerned about your neighbor who is ignorant of Jesus Christ and has a a character of Jesus in their mind, go tell them about Jesus. Go tell them about the great love of God in Jesus Christ. If your heart breaks over people not knowing Jesus, then go tell somebody. Who can you tell this week about the great love of God in Jesus Christ? Who can you help condition their hearts to say in the end, Jesus, I've only ever truly loved you. This is the challenge. It's not just theological. It is also emotional. It is also personal. It's also relational. And so ask yourself, who can I tell about Jesus Christ and how am I conditioning my own heart to say in the end, God, I've only ever truly loved you?